The world of money laundering is fast-paced and ever-involving, as we learned on the last episode of FINRA Unscripted. This can make it difficult for financial firms to develop and maintain strong anti-money laundering programs. On this episode of FINRA Unscripted, we are joined once again by Blake Snyder and Jason Foy of FINRA's AML Investigative Unit to discuss current priorities and best practices when it comes to anti-money laundering regulation. Welcome to FINRA Unscripted. From FINRA's Boca Raton District Office, I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. I'm once again joined by Blake Snyder and Jason Foy from FINRA's AML Investigative Unit. On our last episode, we learned a lot about this unit and what it does and how it works with other regulators, with others within FINRA, and with firms when developing AML programs. And today, Blake and Jason are joining us once again to delve more into FINRA's AML priorities, to discuss some best practices, and to provide some key takeaways from a few recent cases. Blake and Jason, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Hey, Good to be back. having us back. One thing we definitely learned on the last episode is that AML is a very big, complex area. So today, wanted to delve into what firms can learn from FINRA's own priorities and some best practices you see. So let's start with this. What makes AML a perennial FINRA examination priority? I think it's really the issue that you just mentioned is that it's so all-encompassing in terms of what firms and the public and investors are exposed to. And it ranges from the traditional type of money laundering that you kind of see on TV and in the movies to what we talked about in the last episode with securities trading and the types of criminal activities that can happen with securities trading. But also you see it more and more with cybercrime in particular, where AML can be a function of detecting cybercrime when it occurs and, of course, reporting that information out to criminal authorities, ideally in a prompt manner so they can take action and prevent others from being harmed. I think that's a really important point just to drive home. I think it's always on the priorities list because all the things Blake just said, and it's a critical tool that helps law enforcement do its job. As the priorities change and law enforcement puts out additional guidance, the industry evolves with it. So Blake just mentioned a really good example, which is cyber. Cyber threats are a much bigger concern today than they were 10 years ago, obviously. So a couple of years ago, FinCEN put out guidance and said, we would like the securities industry and other financial institutions to start filing SARS when they detect uh, certain types of cyber activity, threats to their infrastructure, threats to personal information of their customers, things of that nature. And that's not to be a nuisance. They want to know where these attacks are coming from so they can look for trends, they can try to get the bad actors, and they can go after the people they need to, to the extent they can, who are doing this to the financial market. I think another really good example is within the last few years, FinCEN and others have put out guidance that they want the industry to file SARS on potential elder exploitation. As large portions of the population get older, it's going to be a larger threat. Unfortunately, it's a real threat that's out there. FINRA has a senior helpline for this, which shameless plug for them. They do great work. But FinCEN put this out again, not because they want to add additional burdens onto the AML and compliance staff, but because they want to go after the bad actors who are doing this. So I think that critical component that these functions play that help law enforcement get the bad guys, I think that's why you always see it on the priorities list as well. 
That's interesting. I wouldn't think that when you're monitoring for money laundering, you're also reporting on suspected senior exploitation. So that does kind of show how all-encompassing this stuff is with yeah. AML. Yeah. So this year, FINRA's priority letter mentioned specifically of FinCEN's customer due diligence rule or CDD rule. What is it? So the CDD rule has been something that's been really in the works for a number of years. The primary driver for it was that the U.S. up until now did not have a requirement that financial institutions identify and verify the identity of beneficial owners of legal entity customers. That is, any corporation or any type of entity that opens up an account at a brokerage firm, there were previously customer identification program requirements that required that firms identify the existence of that entity itself, but nothing at that time requiring that firms look into who actually owns and controls that corporation. So really the crux of the CDD rule is that new requirement that brokerage firms identify beneficial owners that directly or indirectly own 25% or more of any legal entity customer and also identify at least one control person of that legal entity. A second part of the rule that was implemented was really codifying existing implicit requirements that were required as part of the existing AML rules. And the primary requirement that was really laid out in the CDD rule was the requirement that firms understand the nature and purpose of customer accounts that are opened at firms. Sometimes the nature and purpose may be self-evident. If it's a retirement account, for example, you'd have an expectation that account would engage in activities to help the customer save for retirement. Sometimes it may not be. In those instances, more information would be required to be collected. That makes sense because then you're probably monitoring the activity differently. What looks suspicious in a retirement account is going to be different than what looks suspicious in a non-retirement account. Yes, that's exactly correct. And I think fortunately for the securities industry, because there are other rules that the securities industry is required to comply with, suitability rules, books and records rules, securities and the brokerage industry were already collecting a lot of this information. And I think to a certain extent already using it for that purpose, there just wasn't an explicit requirement that they do so. I think this was a bigger haul for the banking industry, for example, where you don't necessarily have a common touch point of having a registered representative be the contact with the customer and talk to the customer whenever transactions are occurring. Where in the banking industry, you can have a customer go to a teller booth and 200 different branches of the same bank and not talk to the same person in any one interaction. So that said, what will FINRA be examining for when it comes to this rule? Last year, the main focus that examiners had is, has the industry developed procedures around this? It's a new rule. So we want to take a kind of measured approach in the beginning, make sure firms have altered their procedures, that they have a process in place, that they've considered the rule and are ready now that it's being implemented to start executing on that rule. I think what you'll see over time is that, like with other new rules that get rolled out, expectations will increase over time. So we'll start asking more questions about implementation, start looking for potential issues that may be arising in that implementation and seeing where that unreasonable line might be and how firms are doing this. But in the short term, I think you can expect a lot of questions just generally about how this program is being established and implemented at the broker-dealer. 
And does data integrity play a role in this? Well, that was a separate priority, and it's really been an annual priority for FINRA for the past couple of years. And that was brought about by some findings that were addressed in some recent cases where we were finding certain types of transactions weren't being fed into the monitoring systems that firms were relying on to monitor for potential AML red flags. And while in isolation, you may look at any one individual of these types of transactions and say, oh, well, you know, those must be pretty rare because I don't see them every day. But at a large institution with a large number of customers with a large amount of volume of transactions, what we were finding is that these failures to feed these transactions into the systems could accumulate and account for billions of dollars worth of really high-risk activity not being monitored by the systems. One quick point is sometimes when we're doing either AML seminars or speaking on panels, we'll get some questions from the smaller institutions. How does data integrity affect me? I'm not using an automated surveillance system. I'm monitoring activity using manual blotters. And while I think it's much different, what I tell everyone that asks me that question from a smaller firm is data integrity for you is making sure that that you have all the information you need on the blotters that you are reviewing, that you're pulling in all of the accounts, that you're pulling in the right information. An easy example I give folks out there is if you are conducting a review of money movements occurring through your firm and you don't have on your blotter that you're reviewing the counterparty to a wire transfer or the country that it went to, you're really operating with one arm tied behind your back because you can't tell things like, is this a first party wire or a third party wire? Is is an international wire or a domestic wire. There's different risk profiles to all of that. And you might be missing a lot of key components if you're not making sure that your blotters have the information that you need in it. That's a good transition to what I wanted to get into on best practices. How should a firm's business model impact how it develops its AML program? Unlike the banking industry, the FINRA AML rule does not explicitly require that a risk assessment be conducted. But I think there is an implicit requirement that firms conduct some type of risk assessment. We don't prescribe how that occurs. And look, for a small firm that has three registered people, you know, I think an informal look and just an understanding of who their customers are and what types of transactions they're engaging in is fine and will suffice. And they may not need something formalized in writing. For a larger firm, particularly for a firm that is going through a merger with another similarly sized firm or a firm that is rapidly expanding its business or a firm that has completely changed its business, as we saw in one case that we had a couple of years ago, taking a step back and saying, okay, we've gone through a number of changes. Let's take a look and do an AML risk assessment and really level set, find out where our risk is and make sure our program is addressing that risk and has adequate coverage over that risk. It can come into play in a couple of different ways. One, say most of your business is related to one specific type of transaction, maybe it's fixed income trading, and you don't really process a lot of money movements, for example, we would expect that your AML procedures would be geared towards your business model. We wouldn't expect to see a lot of red flags about money movements if you're an execution-only firm. We'd expect to see a lot more tailored specific red flags that focus on the risk of securities trading and market manipulation and some of those areas that we talked about on the last episode. And then I think the other thing that we would look 
for is in situations like Blake described, where you may go through a significant business change or you may completely alter the structure of a lot of your customer accounts. We would look to see, did you take a look at that and assess whether your AML procedures are still adequate? And almost kind of tying back in the data integrity, is your AML surveillance system still appropriate? I think one of the cases Blake might be thinking of is we went to a firm, this was probably four or five years ago, they had transitioned all of their accounts from traditional cash-based accounts to execution-only accounts, or what's known as DVP, RVP accounts inside the industry. But all their exception reports were based on the cash account model. So it would generate exceptions based on the assets of the account as a denominator. So if you have a certain number of wire transfers compared to the assets of the account, an alert might fire. But when they made that change to the structure of their accounts, they didn't change their reports. So by the time we came and we saw their reports, we said, there's nothing on here. Over a long period of time, we don't see any alerts generating. Why is that? And they came to the realization as soon as we asked the question, it's because it's all based on the old model and we didn't have that thought process to think through, are these reports still going to do what we want them to do in the new model? So I think it's really critical that firms take that into consideration whenever they're changing or merging or adding new business lines. It's an important thing to go through. Is it a red flag when you see an alert generating system that just generates no alerts? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And quite frankly, it's a red flag. If we know that you're a firm that has a specific business model and we see red flags that don't relate to that at all, that's a red flag as well. Because why aren't the red flags more geared towards the firm's business model? It's really hard to establish and implement a reasonably designed AML program if you don't know what money laundering risk that you're exposed to. Makes sense. So for firms that do have to look at money movements, where are the biggest risks when it comes to money movements through accounts? Well, really, I think what we look at and what we advise firms to look at are established money laundering typologies, which are basically case studies of prior money laundering cases that get into the various types of techniques that money launderers have used to launder money through financial institutions. So there's a number of different, very established money laundering typologies. One, for example, that we frequently hear in money laundering cases involving South Florida is the black market peso exchange, where the drug traffickers located in other countries eventually need to get their profits back to their home countries. So they need to in essence, exchange their illicit U.S. dollars into their local currency. And, and there's a technique for that. And there's a lot of guidance out there that FinCEN's issued, that the Financial Action Task Force has issued, that really detail and diagram out sometimes how that's done. But there's a lot of other typologies as well. There's typologies associated with foreign political corruption and bribery, such as the use of an offshore nominee corporation owned by, for example, a politician. You know, why is that shell company receiving some large amount of funds that's in a round dollar amount? There's just usually no purpose for that and something that requires further review. There's typologies out there for terrorist financing, for example, that detail what firms should be looking out for and the red flags they should be looking out for for terrorist financing. Any case or any new money laundering strategy that's been used, either the U.S. Or, or the FATF will break it down and give firms advice on here's what you should look for to detect this. And one of the issues that frequently comes up in exams where we have findings 
are situations where customers are using their brokerage accounts solely for bank activities. And there's nothing illegal or particularly improper about that, but it's something that firms should be aware of and should be keeping an eye out for. And just getting back to what we were talking about with the CDD rule, the firm should have an understanding of the nature and purpose of that account. And if there is an expectation that that customer is going to do some trading of some type and they take another look at it after some time has passed and that customer is doing nothing that the firm initially anticipated the customer would be doing, that's a situation where they should look further into it and start asking a lot of difficult questions about why aren't you doing this at a bank? Why are you doing it here? Why aren't you engaging in transactions? Not only for the fact that they're probably losing out on potential revenue, but also for the fact that a brokerage account really isn't meant to be used like a bank account. It can be as a supplementary feature to a brokerage account, but that really wasn't the intention. Just to put a closing point on this, again, we get a lot of questions about this. People hear us talk about the risk that can be posed in activity like that, and they ask, well, you know, would you recommend that we don't offer those services? Should I not offer banking-like services because I, the broker-dealer, am just trying to offer what I think my clients want, and if they want a one-stop shop where they can do all their securities transactions and all their banking activity... I want to be able to provide that to them. And I get that. I think, obviously, Blake gets it too. We tell firms, no, of course not. Of course, we're not saying don't offer the services. But what we are saying is just make sure you understand the risk and make sure you understand how the money laundering risk might manifest itself inside those different products and make sure you're adequately covered. We talked last episode about the different phases of money laundering. Layering is just trying to make things complicated and complicate the paper trail and make it hard to track where the money came from or where it's going to. The more types of services you offer, the larger that layering risk might be. I think step one is just being aware of it and making sure that you have systems and processes in place to handle it. If we come in and ask, okay, you're offering check writing services, how are you monitoring that? And if the answer is we're not, well, that's not really reasonable. If you're going to offer the service, just make sure you have a reasonable way of kind of looking for the bigger red flags and the patterns that might exist inside it. That's all. So does AML have a role to play when it comes to trade surveillance? Yes, absolutely. And firms, I think, historically viewed trade surveillance or trade monitoring more from a general compliance standpoint. And they should, because there's quite a number of rules that firms have to comply with in the general compliance sense, whether it's a suitability requirement, making sure commissions and markups are charged in appropriate amounts. But there is a critical function that trade surveillance plays in terms of AML. And we don't dictate or prescribe how firms should be doing that or which group should be doing that. We don't, for example, say that the AML department should be the only people that are engaging in trade surveillance on a firm's behalf looking for potential AML red flags. That function can be delegated to another group, whether it's the business and having a branch manager, for example, do those types of reviews, or most frequently what we see with large firms is the compliance department will be doing those reviews. What we're saying is that trade surveillance for AML purposes should be done in whatever form is reasonable for a firm and reasonable for a firm's business, and that if it is delegated outside of the AML department or whoever the AML officer is, that that delegation should be reasonable and that there should be processes in place 
to where the AML department is informing whoever is doing the reviews of what they're expecting to be escalated up to the AML department, and that there is a feedback loop where if the individuals doing those reviews have questions, they can go to the AML department. The AML department should be hearing from those individuals on a regular basis, whether it's through scheduled meetings or just regular outreach. They should be hearing something about what they're doing, what they're finding, challenges they're seeing, red flags that they identify. Ideally, where firms run into issues that we've seen in some of our cases is where that delegation is made and then there's no follow-up afterwards. And then someone like us or maybe even the SEC or even FinCEN could go into a firm and say, hey, you've delegated your trade surveillance for money laundering purposes to the branches. Tell me how many referrals of potentially suspicious activity they've escalated up to you. And if the answer is zero, particularly for a large firm, that means there's a problem there. So firms can delegate trade surveillance. That delegation just has to be reasonable and appropriate for the firm's business and risk. So making sure everyone's on the same page. I wanted to move over to some recent cases. At the end of last year, FINRA had a number of large AML enforcement actions, and they can be a good way of highlighting some other priorities. One area when I was looking at the cases that stood out was there were two that involved monitoring around penny stocks. What's the issue here? Really, you look at it from two different perspectives. First, firms should be monitoring the deposit of penny stocks into accounts at their firm. And those deposits can take a number of forms. They can be what we call physical deposits, where stock certificates and accompanying information are mailed in or dropped off to a firm for deposit into account. Or they can be electronic deposits where the shares can be electronically transferred either directly from a transfer agent, from another firm, or in a DVP-RVP relationship from a custodial account held away from the firm. So firms should have a process and a system for monitoring those deposits in the cases you referenced. That's not what we found. We found, in a couple different respects, a number of different failures as to why that wasn't occurring. But really, it boiled down to, I think, a recognition of our firm does accept deposits of penny stocks and a failure to really put a program and an adequate system around monitoring those deposits. And not just for anti-money laundering purposes to look for potential red flags, but also to comply with other rules, in particular, Section 5 of the Securities Act of 1933, which requires that all sales of securities into the open market be made through sales of securities that are registered, or if they're not registered, that the shares are subject to an applicable exemption from registration. That gets to direct investor harm, and in particular market integrity, because in those instances, what we see usually is that there's a lack of disclosure about how many shares exist, and the shares that are being sold in the market aren't registered aren't the subject of an exemption from registration and are being sold improperly and in some cases unlawfully. The other aspect of activity in penny stocks that these firms had issues with, and this isn't unique to these firms, we've seen it in cases we've done over the years as well, is the monitoring for trading in penny stocks. And in particular, looking out for instances of market manipulation and even more specific instances of the securities being involved in some type of pump and dump scheme. And looking for that trading and the indications in the trading itself that the trading either is 
causing the manipulation or may be taking advantage and profiting from some type of manipulation that may be elsewhere. So another issue that I saw in one of the cases kind of ties in with a lot of what I've been hearing from you both here today, and that's sufficiency of the resources. So how can a firm determine whether their resources are sufficient? That for us usually ends up being more of a root cause of something else we've seen. So maybe that's the best way I can attempt to answer it because the reality is every firm's different and it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. There might be larger firms, but they're low risk. There might be the activity occurring at the firm is lower risk and doesn't need as many people to handle it. There might be smaller firms or more medium-sized firm, but they have a lot of risky activity, so you're going to need more people. So I think what I would say is look at the other deficiencies or violations that you see in those cases. And I think what you commonly find is that the reports that are generating on potentially suspicious activity, a lot of times you find are not being adequately reviewed or the reviews are not being adequately documented or both. And what we see in those cases where we've brought actions is that the narratives used to close out alerts that are generating from an AML surveillance system, for example, are just copy and pasted over and over and over again, even when the underlying activity being reviewed is dramatically different. And you can tell that they either don't have the time to actually look at what's generating the alert and try to assess what is happening here. And say it's a situation we talked about earlier where it's maybe a third party wire to a higher risk location, well, what is the connection between my customer and this third party? Can I understand a reasonable business purpose on my own through Google searches or internet searches or what I have on my customer in the file and due diligence? If I can't, maybe the registered personnel who handles that account has some information. So I'll go to them, see if they know anything about this transaction. If they don't, maybe we'll go to the customer. These are typical escalation processes that we see inside firms that seem reasonable if implemented correctly. But a lot of times when we bring cases in this space, we just don't see that that's happening. We don't see that firms are really trying to, or the analysts are really trying to figure out what the purpose of the activity is. And the reason that we focus on that is if you look at the actual SAR filing regulation, one of the things that you're supposed to file a SAR on is any transaction or pattern of transactions where there's no apparent business or legitimate economic purpose for the activity. And after review, the firm can't figure it out. So we expect that firms are trying to do that based on the regulation. And if we don't see that in how the alerts and reports are being addressed, a lot of times what we find is either through reading emails and other correspondence that the analysts and the AML staff are overwhelmed, that they can't get to everything. They're asking for additional resources inside the firm. They're not getting it for whatever the reason may be. And you find it as more of a root cause of a lot of other symptoms you're seeing inside the firm. I would also say to firms, either through email reviews or evaluations talking to your staff, you'll hear if they're having resource concerns, if they're overwhelmed, if they're not able to get through the workload. I know everyone needs more resources. We all have limited resources. So I think it's making sure that you're having those conversations and that some of the other things we've talked about are in place as well to make sure that the alerts that are generating are useful, that you're not inundating people with a lot of false positives and unnecessary work as well. So just to wrap up, I wanted to touch on one third area that showed up in some of the recent cases, and that involved foreign currency wire transfers. What's the concern here, and what are firms expected to do? 
That's really a part of the data integrity issue that we talked about earlier. And really what we were seeing is that brokerage accounts traditionally aren't structured to hold foreign currencies. They're designed to hold U.S. dollars so they can then engage in securities transactions with those U.S. dollars. So generally what firms will have to do, for example, when a customer wants to send a wire out in a foreign currency is that those funds will first have to be journaled or moved to some type of a suspense account or a conversion account, and then the wire will go out from that separate account. And vice versa, on an incoming wire in foreign currency, is there's an intermediated count in between the customer actually receiving the funds. The issues that that causes in firm surveillance systems is that the surveillance systems don't connect the outgoing or incoming funds with either the account or the ultimate destination. It'll only see the intermediated account. So instead of seeing a wire sent to a high-risk jurisdiction, they'll see an internal firm transfer, which systems typically regard as being low-risk. So we've seen situations where those foreign currency wires aren't being fed into the systems in an appropriate manner, and really high-risk activity is being missed because the system is identifying it as a transfer occurring within the firm and not necessarily outside of the firm. Yeah, Something to remember here is what you said earlier, making sure everyone's on the same page. So I think the critical groups in this type of an area is AML, obviously, but there's also some components that IT touches and operations touches. And if these groups aren't really communicating with each other, it's really hard to make sure that everybody involved knows how money moves through an institution. Because the way that the money moves through an institution is critical to making sure you understand how to tell the surveillance system where to look to get the data. In Blake's example, if you're looking at the suspense account to customer, you're missing a huge chunk of data that came in before that. So the operations and IT people may not know where the AML risk is, and the AML people may not fully know exactly how all the money logistically moves through an institution, and the IT people are the ones setting up the surveillance system, they all have to be somehow communicating to make sure they know the specifics or the plumbing, as I like to call it, of how the data is flowing through the firm and where the surveillance system needs to pick up the information. Well, that's all we have time for in the second part of our two-part series on FINRA's AML program. I certainly learned a lot over the course of these two episodes. So Blake and Jason, thanks again for joining us. From Boca, I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. If you have any questions for future guests or ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at finraunscripted at finra.org. Until next time. note FINRA podcasts are the sole property of FINRA and the information provided is for informational and educational purposes only. The content of the podcast does not constitute any FINRA rule or amendment or interpretation of such rules. Compliance with any recommended conduct presented does not mean that a firm or person has complied with the full extent of their obligations under FINRA rules, the rules of any other SRO or securities laws. This podcast is provided as is. FINRA and its affiliates are not responsible for any human or mechanical errors or omissions. Parties may not reproduce these podcasts in any form or reference them in any publication without the express written consent of FINRA.